The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth your handiwork. Father, as we think of this great universe in which you have displayed your glory, and we think of man, who are we that you should be mindful of us? And yet, Father, we are the center of your creation. We are the ones that you have created for your glory. So great is your love for these humans that you have created, that you sent your own son to die, that we might too experience eternal life with the God of all creation. And Father, we know that what we will experience one day will be a creation far more glorious than the one that we can even possibly imagine now. And we look forward to that. We're, we, we pray, Lord, that uh, we will keep this constantly before us, and this will be helping us to walk faithfully with you. Lord, I pray that you will bless us today in our study of the word. We ask that your spirit will open our eyes to the truth that you have in the words of your scripture for each one of us. Father, meet each need here today. Bless the word as it is proclaimed elsewhere on this facility today in the service in the various classes. Lord, touch each life according to the need which you clearly see and know. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the second, second chapter of Judges, Judges chapter 2. I'd like to begin reading at verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. 13 Judges 2. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And they sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them bow and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I could their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will also not drive out before, before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he didn't give them into the hand of Joshua. What is really astounding, I think, about this is that we're talking about only one generation 
after the conquest. And miracles had been performed throughout the, the, the Exodus and then in the conquest. And we're talking about at least 50 years of miracles. Beginning with the first of the plagues that, the God, that God brought upon the Egyptians is in flood stage and God said, no problem, stop the water, and they all marched across into Canaan to begin the conquest. And then they faced the great walled city of Jericho, which of course, you know, it wasn't a huge city, but it was too great for Israel. So all they had to do was march around it, six plus seven, 13 times, and the walls fell down. I mean, what kind of a miracle is that? A mighty miracle. They had experienced a, a, a miracle that still impressed some, and, and that was as they were, they were fighting the southern coalition of, uh, of Canaanites, and they were chasing them down the Beth Horon Ridge, and they were going to make a, right a left turn down towards the south, and, and, and it was getting dark, and the enemy was getting away, and so Joshua stood on the hill and prayed that the Lord would give them daylight, and the Lord froze the sun in the sky for maybe 24 hours, at least long enough, for them to defeat the enemy. Who'd heard of ever such a miracle before? I mean, knocking the walls of Jericho down, that was a miracle, but who knew about it? The Canaanites were in the city and, and, and the Israelites. But when you keep the sun in the sky for however many extra hours, it impacts the whole world. And of course, when we, did, when we studied that, we talked about the fact that there are traditions from all over the world of an extra day or an extra night uh, in all kinds of primitive societies. And, and then, of course, there was the, the, the mighty miracle of the crushing of the northern confederacy, this mighty army of Canaanites with iron chariots and iron weapons, uh, a, a people who were oriented towards warfare against Joshua and his crew of Bedouins, in effect, you know. And the victory was great. It was obviously a miracle of God. And the list is very long of all the things that God did on behalf of his people. And now, incredibly, within a generation, the Israelites are turning to worship the very gods that Yahweh had totally humiliated and proven were non-gods. What kind of sanity is that? What the Israelites were doing were follow, was following into the same trap that many people do today in, in our society. And that is chasing after experiential, feel-good religion. Something you can touch, you can see, you can feel. Something tangible that's not based on propositional truth. They hadn't experienced the miracles themselves. They had just heard about them. They'd heard that the walls of Jericho fell down. They saw the cairn there, the pile of rocks, which, which, which testified to the mighty miracle of the crossing of the Jordan. But they hadn't seen the waters lifted. They hadn't seen the walls fall. So to them, it was just hearsay. And it was meaningless to them. They didn't know God personally. He was the God of, of their people, but not a God of their own hearts. He was simply one among many gods. Yes, there's Yahweh, but then there's the Baals and the Astra and all these other long list of gods that exist. Who's to say he's the God as opposed to other gods? And you hear that all the time today in America. Well, who's to say that the God of the Bible is any better than the God of the Quran? Or, or the 330 million Hindu gods, or whatever you want to talk about. It's not new. It's an old argument. I think it's very important for us to remember that the world, the flesh, and the devil were just as alive then as they are now, and just as powerful in their impact upon people then as it is today. 
Now, the appeal of the worship of Baal, Ashtoreth, the other fertility gods, was of course in the sensibility of their worship. They were very sensual. The religions appealed to the five senses, you know, the taste, the touch, the sight, the hearing, and all of that. Uh, so so it, it was, th their religions were not based upon propositional truth. It wasn't based on, upon a, a great theology. It was based upon, rah, there it is, you can see it, you can feel it, you can, you can do it. You, know, you can practice the religion in a very appealing, sensually appealing way. Now the worship of Yahweh was different. Yes, there are some aspects, were some aspects of the worship of Yahweh, which were very uh, appealing to the senses. There was the burning of the incense. There was the beautiful tabernacle and, and the gold that was associated with it all. There was the singing that would go along with it. But in comparison to the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, the worship of Yahweh seemed austere. It seemed farther away. It seemed more intellectually oriented than feel-good oriented. Yahweh was invisible. And that's been a big problem throughout history for the Jews and the Christians. I mean, that's what happened in the world of Rome. The Romans persecuted the Jews and the Christians partly because they couldn't conceive of an invisible God because all of their gods were visible. I mean, they were even incarnate in the emperor. And so the idea of, a, of an invisible God was looked upon by the Romans and, and the Greeks as a cop-out for not worshiping the obvious gods. Yahweh was to be worshipped with the eyes of faith, but the gods of the Canaanites could be worshipped with the eyes of the flesh. You could see the comely form of a particular god or goddess. You could see the face. You could, you know, see the priest or the priestess and participate with them. It was a participatory religion in the sense that prostitution was very much a part of the worship of all of these fertility gods. It was an act of worship. Very appealing, of course, to the flesh. To worship the God of Israel was to deny the excesses of the flesh. To worship the Baals and the Ashtra was to revel in the excesses of the flesh. So there it was, clear and plain. Live, live a, a life of denial of the flesh or live a life of gratification of the flesh. Either way, it's your choice, but you're, you're worshiping the deities either way, you know? And you can understand where it's pretty hard to, to do both. <laughs> How could you worship the God of Israel and the Baals since one d d required, uh, you know, uh, chastity and the other one played up sensual living? I think the people of that time would have agreed with the late, uh, the, the, the late 20th century motto that we've all heard about so much, and that is, how can it be bad when it feels so good, you know? Now, you and I are not likely to be successfully tempted to join some pagan fertility cult. It, it does exist in America today in the sense of uh, this whole witchcraft, Mother Earth movement, which is really a pagan fertility cult. But you and I may, it's possible for us to be lured into some subtle perversion of the truth. And there are lots of subtle perversions of the truth existing in America today. They're widespread. They sometimes go by names that we would not even understand them to be any kind of a perversion. But there's no need for any of us to fall into 
any of those traps, any of those pitfalls. Because we can avoid them simply by, first of all, learning to know God personally through His Word. Knowing this book so well that we understand who God is. And, and we understand what He's doing in this world and what He's doing in our lives. And, and as we understand Him as He is, then all these perversions obviously become a perversion. I mean, it's, the red flags fly everywhere, you know, when you hear uh, what some people believe in practice. Uh, if we are faithful to believe His Word and to obey it. A lot of people say they read the Word, but they don't believe the Word. They argue with the Word. Well, God says this, but no, 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 no. It can't really be what it says here because that doesn't make sense. That's not logical. Human logic falls so short of divine logic. God's logic is absolutely perfect. Human logic always falls short of it. And, and, and it argues in endless, circuitous routes. I mean, just talk to a philosopher who has no time at all for, for the God of the Bible, and you, you're talking to somebody who's going around in circles all the time and, and is, you know, chasing his tail like a dog and, and coming to no answers and no conclusions whatsoever. Thirdly, if we're committed to personal and corporate prayer, Commitment to prayer keeps us on the right track, helps us to be in communion with the God of this book. And He will say and speak to us through His Word and, and through advice from others if we're beginning to be lured away into that which is not of Him. We need to be alert to the wiles of the devil. Now, often we think of the devil as in a comic strip way. I, I'm sure we don't, but people in this country do, as a little imp. You know, he sits on your shoulder here and he's babbling in your ear and there's a little angel on the other side babbling in your ear on this side. And, and it's as if he's just kind of a little imp. You can brush him off. He's not a little imp. He's a mighty spiritual force. And he's out, the scripture tells us. He's, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's devouring a lot of people. A lot of people who think they're doing right. But there's no reason for us to be devoured if we know the God of the Bible and we know the Bible of our God. And then lastly, if we learn to discipline our flesh. This is one of the hardest things to do because our flesh is constantly gnawing at us all the time, is it not? Every day uh, from morning to uh, evening, uh, it's, it's yakking at us, you know, telling us to do this, we need that, oh, you know, something's always going wrong, something's always got to be better. And, and if we can learn to discipline it, to avoid immoral behavior and excesses. You know, the devil loves to push us to excess. Excess. <laughs> the theory has always been in my mind that if Satan can't keep us from following the Lord, he will try to push us to extremes to do something really or believe something really weird uh, so that we're not mainline following God as we should. Well, it seems from the reading of this passage in, in the second chapter of Judges that most of the Israelites yielded to the temptation to false worship and became apostate as a result. In fact, if, you, if we look back at, the, at verses 12 and 13, we, we see the extent of the apostasy. How extensive was this apostasy? Well, it begins with the first uh, five words of the 12th verse, it says, and they forsook the Lord. How much more apostate can you be? And they forsook the Lord. 
it goes on to say that not only did they forsake the Lord, reading verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. So they weren't even standing with one foot in each camp as Israel was in the days of Elijah when he said, why do you keep standing with one foot in each camp? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. Quit trying to walk the road in the middle or down the middle of the road. But these people weren't even doing that. They forsook the Lord and chased after Baal and Ashtoreth. I mean, it was a total turnaround for them. Now, the Hebrew word, which is translated forsook, means to completely abandon. Completely abandon. Nothing left whatsoever. Culturally, spiritually, in any sense of the word, they threw it all over. And it says they bowed down. Well, the word bowed down in, in Scripture means to prostrate before the deity, whatever it is. To prostrate, to lie flat out on your face before the deity in total, absolute submission to this, these deities and to worship them, to kiss towards the, the deities of Baal and Ashtoreth. Now, if an independent observer had come along, and really knew not much of anything except to uh, study the situation, they would not be able to distinguish Israelite from Canaanite. In worship and lifestyle, Israelite and Canaanite would have been indistinguishable. That's how far they went. Totally integrated into the lifestyle, the worship of the Canaanite culture which surrounded them. This is only one generation after the great miracles. We say, how can it be? How can it be? It seems incredible to us. And yet all we have to do is look at much of the church in America today. And we discover that much of the church is indistinguishable from the world. Indistinguishable from the world. There are churches in America today where the God of this book would not be welcome and is not welcome. I mentioned this before, but there was a response to our neighbor's article. He's the pastor of the United Methodist Church. But his, his article in the paper, one of the responses to criticism of his article was, if that's not the God of the Bible that he was describing there, then I don't want to know the God of the Bible. You know, the idea was the God of the Bible is one who accepts all and, you know, everybody's doing his best and, and nobody's really going to go to hell because there really isn't any hell and, except for the really, really, really bad dudes. And, you know, as long as you're faithful to whatever it is you believe, it's all going to be okay in the end. And they say, that's the way it's got to be. You know, that's, that's, that's the way God should be. And if it isn't going to be that way, I don't want to know him. <laughs> the problem is the people who say that have no clue who the God of the Bible really is. Because they have this, this pagan view of God as if he is just a mighty angry being up there waiting for anybody to get out of line so we can whack him. And one of the things we're going to see as we study through the book of Judges is the long-suffering and mercy and love of God just oozes from every page, as it does throughout the whole Old Testament, as well as the New. Now, in his holy wrath, God did exactly what he warned Israel he would do if they disobeyed and followed after pagan gods. He gave them into the hands of their enemies. He said, you walk with me and I will give you peace in your land. 
If you don't walk with me, I will give you trouble and you will be delivered into the hands of your enemies. Now, you and I in America, ever since the revolution, have never been in the hands of enemies. Unless, of course, you were off in, in a war and got captured as a prisoner of war. You've never been in the hands of enemies. We've never been in the hands of enemies. So we don't really know how to respond to that. But, but to think that you're living in a land which somebody else who, who's of a different tongue, a different nationality, a different religion, a different idea of what life should be like, they rule you and they determine how you should live. It's sort of like going back to slaves that lived in America back in the 19th century who, who really had no control over their own lives. We, we don't know how sad that would really be, how tragic that would be, how oppressive that would be. But that's exactly what God did. He gave them into the hands of their enemies. But Notice that God doesn't give tit for tat. They forsook the Lord and chased after the Baals. Did God forsake them? Did God abandon them? No, he did not. If he had abandoned them, he just said, all right, go your own way and I'll ignore you. I'll go do, I'll find somebody somewhere else. And then they wouldn't have had all this trouble, right? They could have just gone down the broad road to destruction like the Canaanites were going. But God loved them so much, he gave them a bunch of trouble. He didn't abandon them. He chastised them. He brought severe chastisement on them. Notice what it says in verse 15. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. You know, if, if God hadn't cared, they could have just gone on lollygagging down the road to destruction and, and wouldn't even known the difference. But God made it really difficult to, to as, as he said to Paul, kick against the goads. I mean, God's up there goading us along, you know, and if we slow down or we try to go another way, you get a jab, right? Well, God is jabbing Israel here. And he's jabbing, jabbing them really hard. His purpose is to awaken them to their folly. Awaken them to their folly. You guys are a bunch of fools. You, you go back to the Ten Commandments and God didn't say, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me because God is, I mean, it does say in Scripture that God is a jealous God, but not jealous in the sense that we are. You know, we get green and, and we're really upset because we are being hurt. God is jealous for his people. He wants them to have the best. He loves them. And therefore, he will do whatever he has to do to bring them into line. He wants to awaken them to their folly. Now, there are people, and, and this is natural, it's human, who want God to rescue their lost friend or their lost loved one, but they don't want God to do anything severe to do it. Well, I'm sorry, but chances are it isn't going to happen unless God does something severe because we are stiff-necked people. And we sometimes have to really be hit up hard before we pay attention to what God is saying. Most people will not recognize their need for God until they are in a serious crisis. That's why crises keep happening. You know, uh, we have the lighthouses for prayer here, and this is a really good thing. But, you know, as you, if, if you're part of that and if you're praying for your neighbors and, and walking through the neighborhood and praying for the houses and the people there, you need to pray that God will do whatever he needs to do to awaken them to their need. Now, we can't tell God what that is. God, have them, you know, have a crash or a car wreck, you know. No, we can't say anything like that. But, but we, we must pray that God will do whatever it takes for them to be aware that they need him.
And that's really praying a prayer, a prayer of blessing on the people because there is no greater blessing in their lives than that they come to know the Lord whatever it takes to get them there. Because even if, if, if it takes some serious situation that ultimately results in what might be considered early demise, well, it's better to die and go to heaven today than to live 20 more years and go to hell. Because what are those 20 years in, 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 in eternity? They're nothing. Gone. I mean, for us who are Christians even, it seems like 20 years goes like that. I mean, the older I get, the, the more 20 years seems like, whew, nothing, you know. Just a uh, lily that grows in the morning and <laughs> wilts in the afternoon. Well, as Israel travailed under God's affliction, God revealed His mercy. How did He do that? He raised up a deliverer time and time again. God raised up a deliverer and he saved them from the very enemies that he gave them into the hands. Now the scripture is very clear here in this passage. Verse 18, And when the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies. Who raised up the judge? God did. Who empowered the judge? God did. It wasn't that a mighty man came along, you know, Hulk Hogan, you know, I'm going to save this country, you know, by my might and by my power. Forget it. As, as we'll see when we come along here, I mean, some of the mighty men God raised up were not so mighty, hiding down in a hole so the enemy wouldn't see him, you know, Gideon. And even Gideon was surprised. You, you want me? You say, I'm a man of valor? You know, why are my teeth clattering and my knees shaking if I'm a man of valor? And what we discover from this passage is that as soon as one deliverer leaves the scene, what do the people do? Drift back into idolatry. Well, but you know, can we accuse them of being stupid or slackered? No, I, I think every time we look in the mirror, we have to say we resemble the Israelites of old. The root of their apostasy was in the original disobedience of not driving out the Canaanites in the beginning. It began on that fine day when they had just completed the, uh, the conquest of Ai after a little bit of fumbling around there. And they uh, made an agreement with the Gibeonites who were just next down the line, only they didn't ask God to give them some kind of wisdom as to whether they should make this treaty with the Gibeonites. Oh, well, we can do it on our own, you know, because we're God's people. You know, it's like being a man or a woman of God and thinking we can go ahead into a situation without seeking God's power and strength and wisdom to do it in every situation. God, therefore, used the Canaanites to test his people. What in the world did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden for? We could say, God, we wouldn't have any of this problem today if you hadn't put that tree there. It's all your fault. You did it. But God put the tree there to test Adam and Eve's faith because faith untested is faith that doesn't exist. It's like the tree that has roots, you know, the tree that's 100 feet tall has roots one foot deep. The wind comes along and splat, you know, it falls over first time. The roots have got to be driven deep and they can only be driven deep by the tempest blowing and the difficult times coming. The Canaanite religion thus becomes like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's there. It's all around Israel. It's in the midst of Israel. Now God is saying, 
I have demonstrated my power. I have done all these great miracles. Are you going to worship me? Or are you going to chase after your sensual desires and worship these pagan non-gods? I have made them all folly. I have proven that all gods don't even exist. They're just demons representing deities. They're not true gods at all. Are you going to foolishly follow them or are you going to worship the God who has demonstrated his reality and his power? Thus, God did not drive out the Canaanites, but turned their presence to his purpose. Notice how God does that. We goof up, don't do what God wants us to do. He then turns around and takes the fruit of our failure and uses it to make us more like him. It's a story that nobody could have invented. Nobody could have sat down and wrote, written all of this. And I don't care how brilliant a writer could not have thought of these truths. Now the very existence of the Canaanites in the midst of Israel should have caused any really thinking Israelite to be constantly reminded of their failure to drive out the Canaanites. There they are. We didn't drive them out. This is a thorn in our side just as God said it would be. Whose fault is it? God's? I don't think so. We are the ones who failed. Now this passage here from verse 11 to verse 23 of the second chapter of Judges is like an abstract or a synopsis of the whole book. It kind of takes the whole story that, that we're going to be looking at here as we start with Othniel and go through the 12 Judges and of course spend a lot of time with Samson because he was the most written about judge. It boils them all down into just kind of an overview of the whole thing here in this particular passage. Because throughout the book, from the third chapter on, what we keep finding are repeated cycles of apostasy, oppression, repentance, deliverance. Apostasy, oppression, repentance, deliverance. Over and over and over again. What we'll see, of course, is differences in the character of the judges, characters of the judges, we'll see that the length of the judgeships varied greatly. The shortest of the judgeships that is actually mentioned in terms of a number is six years, that of Jephthah. The longest, longest, <laughs> longest of the judgeships was that of Ehud, which is 80 years. And what you're going to find is really amazing, and you've already, of course, I'm sure, noted this, is that the current Israeli prime minister bears the name of two judges. Ehud and Barak, two of the judges of this book. What does that mean about him? Well, I don't know. Maybe nothing. Netanyahu was the gift of God. Well, was he? Well, we'll see. I guess we'll see. The amount of space accorded to each judge varies dramatically also. As we come to the end of the third chapter, we find one little old verse given to Shamgar. Well, I guess one verse in the Bible is better than no verses in the Bible. But for Shamgar, you put him up against Samson, Samson gets four chapters. What we do is, of course, we discover a lot about the nature and character of Samson, and we, don't, we know virtually nothing about Shamgar, except he killed 600 Philistines with a sharp stick. <laughs> That's not bad, you know. The details of oppression and deliverance, of course, are different in each cycle. God generally gives them over to a different enemy. As we're going to see, they'll, 
they'll, they'll be uh, given over to people who come from fairly long ways away in the first cycle here. Then they'll be given over to their neighbors, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and, and then they'll be oppressed by the Canaanites. I mean, this thing will happen, and the length of the oppression will be different. And I'm sure the intensity of the impression of the oppression was different from time to time. The extent of it, how much of, of, of Israel was under each oppression? Uh, was all of Israel under each oppression or just a part of Israel? We don't know for sure uh, about each one. But nevertheless, God was using this to change His people. And this theme runs constantly through the whole book. I love you so much that I'm going to stick it to you until you turn around and yield to my authority. Because it is for your glory and your good here and in eternity that you love me. I love you so much to do the hard thing. Tough love with a capital T, tough. This ishy-gishy love that some people call it, where you don't want to do anything to hurt little Tyke here, is non-biblical. Because if you don't train up a child in the way he should go, he will not turn to God. Because it isn't in human nature to turn to God. Human nature is, the nature of a human being is a rebel. The nature of a rebel. And only as it is committed, as our natures are committed over to God and brought into submission to Him can it be converted. And you and I, if we're honest, we have to say that the process of our being converted from a rebel to an obedient servant is a long, hard process. And it takes an entire lifetime. It takes an entire lifetime. What is so amazing about the book of Judges is this theme involves God's love, His mercy, and His long-suffering. You keep seeing this over and over again. I love you so much that I'm going to put you under this heinous oppression until you yield to me. Because if you don't, you'll be cast into outer darkness forever and ever. Now you look at any religion in the world you want to look throughout the history of the world and you will find no other religion where there is a God depicted who shows love and long-suffering to a constantly recalcitrant people, to a people who disobey, he brings them back, they walk in obedience, they disobey. I mean, the cycle is like the tick of the clock. Most of the gods of the world, you read about them, and they get ticked off after a couple of times, and it's all over. You know, it's... I mean, you look at the God of Islam, and he's not a God of mercy at all. He's a God of harshness. And the God of the Bible is a God of mercy with a capital M. I'd like to read from Psalm 85 here. Now, Psalm 85 was written, of course, long after the events we're talking about but it applies just as much to the events we're talking about as to any period in history. O Lord, Thou didst show favor to Thy land. Thou didst restore the captivity of Jacob. Thou didst forgive the iniquity of Thy people. Thou didst cover all their sin. Thou didst withdraw all Thy fury. Thou didst turn away Thy burning anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause Thine indignation towards us to cease. <clears throat> Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou prolong thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not thyself revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. 
I will hear what the Lord, what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. God, when his people repented, smiled upon them and blessed their land. And when they chased after false gods, God brought harsh chastisement on them. Why? So that they would repent and he could smile on them again. And that is really the story of Psalm 85 throughout the history of Israel. And I think it's the story of our lives, too. Well, next Sunday, we're going to move into the third chapter and we'll start looking at the first of the deliverers, Othniel, uh, who we've run into before. <clears throat> and uh, then we'll move, uh, in, in that chapter, we'll move to, to the second judge, too, very <laughs> briefly. And uh, actually, the third judge, three judges in, in, in that chapter.